We are taking a break from Mark's Gospel for a little while. And um, we're going to be working our way through taking a, a thematic approach uh, in, the, in the letter to uh, the, the letter 1 Peter, a thematic approach looking at a particular concept, a particular idea. Um, and I want to just begin by asking you what do you think happens when you become a Christian? And the answer is not, as people often assume, that there are merely behavioral changes. It's not deep enough to think in those terms. The answer has to do with something much more um, penetrating than that. It has to do with what the Bible describes as a heart transformation. I think the closest word that we use in our in the modern days, is to think, think of deep psychological transformation. The word psyche or suki is the Greek for soul, and it means that in the deepest parts of you, there's a change. And really what the, the New Testament shows us is that this transformation is, is a change of identity. And I think we are mistaken if we underestimate what a powerful concept identity is. And I say that because if you were to scan the newspaper and think about the conflicts which are playing out on the global scene at the moment, all of them have to do with fundamental differences of identity. People divide themselves based on who they think they are in opposition to other groups who think differently, who are different at some levels. And this is also true, maybe, well, you can see this playing out right now in terms of one of the great dividing lines we're seeing in our in modern Britain, whether you conceive of yourself as basically a citizen of the world or of Europe, or whether you conceive of yourself as a citizen of Britain, and I'm not suggesting that either of those is right or wrong, merely observing that that is the dividing line, isn't it, of what is causing such a fractious moment in our public dialogue. And, but this isn't anything new. Um, I know we've got a few northerners in the church, uh, not many actually, but there's a few, and the north-south divide, I feel like I can speak about this because my parents are both northerners, which explains my somewhat weird accent, I just, some words I just haven't quite been, been able to nail, even though I grew up in the south, and um, it, northerners are, there's a very different culture in the north, northerners pride themselves on their sense of community, um, you know, anyone will talk to you in the street, um, they'll pride themselves on uh, their gritty approach to life. It's generally working class industrial towns and, and, gener- and pride themselves on their pies as well. Um, I'm a huge fan of northern pies. It's one of the great reasons to go up north and visit. Uh, as we often did in my childhood, go see the relatives. And southerners, what do southerners pride themselves on? They generally pride themselves on not being northern. So <laughs> there are these distinctions that really are rooted in an identity. Um, it's true, you think about class issues. Class issues um, often... Uh, are perpetuated because of who we, who we think we are, essentially. You walk into a room, you subconsciously, very quickly assess whether you feel like you belong in that room based on who you perceive yourself to be, on your sense of identity, on your sense of who you are. And this is true just, you know, you, you walk through parts of London and you have a quick sense of whether you belong there or not, whether this is your tribe or not. These are identity issues, always. It's the same in workplaces, everywhere. We feel, we, we live out who we are. Uh, for good or ill, all of the time. It's an inescapable dimension of life. And the reason why I stress that to you is because one of the most um, 
one of the, the aspects of Christian identity which is given too little attention, I suppose, but which is actually quite um, key in the biblical understanding is this idea the Bible teaches us that to be a Christian is in some sense to be an exile on the earth. To, that in some way your, your home is elsewhere, you don't belong. And this is, this is an absolutely vital theme that we're going to be unpacking in the coming weeks. And really there are basically two perspectives that you can approach this from and two reasons why it's so absolutely critical and vital for the Christian's self-understanding. There's, first of all, the negative point of view. That if you begin to grasp your identity as a Christian being in exile, it defines you in a negative sense over against the society in which you live, for us in London. That there's a sense in which by your nature, in your deepest part of your identity, you are distinct. You're different. This is absolutely fundamental to Christ's teaching of what it means to be a follower of Christ. When he called his disciples and said to them things like, you are salt, you're the salt of the earth. You know, there's lots of things you can say about that, but one of them is you're different. You are distinct. And he also says then to, for salt to lose its saltiness, it's good for nothing. And the same when he said that you're light. He's saying that what makes you different from the world in which you exist is that if there's darkness out there, to be my followers is to in some sense embody the light which is Christ's own light. You're different, in other words. And we need to define this idea of exile negatively all the time and understand our distinction from the world in which we live. And I think that's critical for any believer in grasping who they are and understanding how to live it out. Um, Peter Later in his letter, he, you know, part of the reason I'm stressing this is because if you don't understand your difference, a lot of the thing, parts of the Christian life will surprise you. And Peter says to them towards the end of his letter, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's saying to them, Listen, what you're experiencing because you're Christians is actually not that unusual. We have to understand this negatively. That's one perspective. Another perspective is, of course, the positive view, which is that when it sinks into you, this identity of who we are as exiles, when that begins to get into your bones, you understand that our home is elsewhere, your heart shifts with that. There's a sense in which your sense of where you belong, what you're loyal to, moves and that becomes a compelling, powerful dynamic in the life of, of a believer. I know that not all of you are Christian. I understand that you're looking in. And in one sense, part of the benefit of thinking about a theme like this one is that you begin to grasp why Christians are different and understand the reasons behind it. It gives you a window into the reality of the, of the Christian life in a way like few other themes will. Now, I want to stress this because, and we're going to be looking at Peter's letter because it is a very clear theme that comes through in uh, the letter of 1 Peter. And uh, we're not going to be doing a line-by-line exposition. It's rather going to be um, what I think of as a flyover, just noting the territory as we move through the letter, but with a particular attention on this idea which keeps cropping up throughout it, that we are strangers on the earth, that we are exiles on the earth. 
And I want, to, I want to just read to you the first 12 verses of this letter so that we can get into this theme. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves or serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Did you see how Peter opened up his letter? To the elect exiles of the dispersion. That word dispersion is a well-known word. um, It's the same word diaspora. And really the idea of the diaspora had arisen because the Jewish people had experienced a succession of conquests of the land of Israel. And every time, you know, from the Babylonian conquest onward, when they'd been experienced oppression, one of the impacts of that was the scattering, whether east into the Babylonian Empire or later west into the Roman Empire. And so there were pockets of Jewish communities scattered all across the world at the time. And wherever they went, these were understood to be diaspora Jews, dispersion Jews. One of the things that would have been evident, you see this in the book of Acts, so whenever Paul's traveling from town to town as a missionary, the first thing he did when he got to the town, so let's say he arrives in the city of, of uh, Athens, what does he do? The first thing he does is he finds the Jewish community, and that wasn't hard for him to do. You find the synagogue, and near the synagogue, you find the Jewish people, because they all lived within walking distance of the synagogue so they could get there on the Sabbath day. And maybe they were distinct, as they certainly are in our day and age, often among certain Jewish communities, distinct because of the way they dress, distinct because of particular food, particular rhythms, the idea of having a day off each week, and that was weird in the Roman day, they didn't understand that, but that was true of the Jewish community, distinct because of the way they looked, the way they spoke, the way they related to one another, their commitment to one another as a community, so many things that made them appear and look different from others. Now, Peter takes that idea 
It's a vivid idea, isn't it? If you've been through parts of our city, you've seen communities, and you may have been to the parts where there are Jewish communities, uh, a heavy presence of Jewish communities in our city. It's a, it's a really vivid image, isn't it? And he says, listen, to the Christians, he says, listen, you are now the dispersion. You're the elect exiles dispersed, scattered through the world. And I want to show you what that means. He describes them as being elect, by the way, which means you're plucked out. You're called. Something special in the sense that God has put his hand upon you. He says that they've been born again to a living hope, which means, of course, they're now birthed into this new community, this new people, God's people. And I want to show you a few things from this passage about what it means to live in exile, which I think will set something of a frame and a foundation for everything that we're going to be considering in the weeks ahead. Here's the first. To be in exile means that you experience a great sense of friction or tension living in the world as we do. There's a sense in which it is difficult. Now, I, I want to start here with this, this particularly negative aspect because I think that there are, you know, when, when a person becomes a follower of Jesus, one of the things that Jesus spoke about in his parables was he, he spoke about there being a fallout. He, he spoke about people who would struggle or could not go the distance. It's particularly there in the parable of the sower, isn't it? And one of the great reasons why people struggle in their Christian faith is on account of this. They begin to ask questions like this one. They begin to ask, why is it? That to have a Christian identity means to experience a hostility in the world. And of course, one of the answers is, well, because you're in exile. The word exile can also be translated refugee. If you know anything of what's happening in the global scene, wherever you find communities of refugees, you find friction. You find that they're not always welcome in the place where they are living. You know, when I was in Lebanon... Uh, we visited Lebanon about nine years ago. This is before the Arab Spring, but there was a large community, I think a million or so Palestinians who were living in Lebanon. But the, the weird thing about it was that they lived in, 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 in the same locations in basically refugee camps. They didn't look like camps, but it was, they were called refugee camps. And these Palestinians did not have passports. They could not vote. So they were living as refugees in a foreign land, but without all the rights of being citizens. You think about what's happened in recent years, how the camps have built up in Calais with particularly African migrants, refugees working their way through the continent on their way, wanting to come to Britain, this particular group. And there they are, encamped in Calais, not particularly at home in France, not at home anywhere. There's friction. Even, you know, when, uh, when, the, first, when the Second World War was just beginning to break out, and there was the fear of the bombing raids as the Luftwaffe would come and fly over London and bomb the city. One of the first things that was arranged was for all the children to be uh, taken out of London and put into country homes, in the homes of, just, uh, of strangers, essentially, to be taken care of for the duration of the war, for the, the season while the bombing was, was taking place. And uh, one of the things I was, I was reading about this just recently was saying that you know, to, it sounds surprising now when you look back on it, but apparently when they were being shipped off to areas like Devon and Cornwall, the locals, you know, some of the locals at least, were like, these children, they don't belong here. 
They're not from round these ear parts, and they don't belong here. And so they, there was actually a resistance to taking these children into their communities. You think, how, how is that possible? But that's humanity. Wherever there are refugees, there is friction. You think, this is crucial for your self-understanding as a Christian. When you understand that you're an exile on earth, you begin to recognize why it's sometimes hard to own the Christian faith. Why, it's, why there are problems. Another thing that you'll run into is the question where you, th- you ask yourself, well, why is it that I suddenly experience this inner turmoil in terms of the way my friends and family go about life? You know, this was my way before, and suddenly I feel uncomfortable with the things that my friends and family are doing or my colleagues are doing. Feel, it feels like I'm, there's a conflict inside. There's conscience issues. There's guilt issues. And it has to do with this new identity. It's like... You know, when Peter, he says a little bit later in chapter 1 that you've been ransomed from the futile ways of your forefathers. He's saying, in other words, that before you were a Christian, you had a particular set of customs, that, that what you thought was just normal. Now that you're a Christian, your identity has shifted, radically shifted. And you can't underestimate how much that then causes a conflict in terms of just the way you practice, live out your life. You suddenly look with new eyes. You think, I, I don't want to live that way anymore. Where does that come from? It comes from your sense of having of now being in exile on the earth. Now, Peter acknowledges this right from the start of his letter. When he writes to these elect exiles, he talks about this friction. And he talks about it in terms of the language of suffering and trial. I don't know if you notice that in verse 6 where he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And he's not... He's not speaking here about ordinary day-to-day struggles that we go through. He's not talking about the problems of unemployment or the problems of poverty or the problems of sickness or whatever else. He's talking to these believers about the suffering that was happening to them because they are now followers of Christ. He's talking to them about the problems that were happening in their life because they professed Jesus. Jesus warned us about this sort of thing. He said, for example, in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, this, this is crucial, and I'll tell you why. It's because you can begin to understand some of the problems that arise in your own heart on account of your faith. You can begin to understand why there's part of you that feels a tension or why you begin to revolt sometimes against your, your Christian identity if you're a Christian. You think, I don't want this discomfort. I don't want this conflict. I want to belong. If you don't understand what's going on and it makes you vulnerable... But the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, talks in vivid language about this conflict of heart and and tells you what is the right way to go. And I think about passages like this one in, in 1 John 2 where he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He says these are two mutually exclusive ways of life. You can either follow God or you can follow the way of the world, but you can't do both. You, you and I both know that, don't we? He says, For all that's in the world... And then he gets really specific. He says, the desires of the flesh, your sinful desires, 
the desires of the eyes, the things that seem so attractive, that appeal to us. And he says, and the pride of life, the, the longing to get ahead in this world, to be seen and recognized and to be a success in the world system. He says all that, he says, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God, he says, abides forever. When you begin to experience this tension because you're an exile living in a foreign land, but this part of you wants to fit into that foreign land and just belong, just be one of the normal people. The New Testament keeps telling you that's where you need to be aware of the danger. Now, I'm stressing this because one of the great and urgent needs for Christians in this particular cultural moment as it gets more and more clear that to live a Christian life is a radical departure at every level from what it means to get along in this world. The question is, well, how are you going to be faithful to Jesus? How are you going to persevere in this? And I'm, I'm suggesting, I don't think you can unless you have a self-understanding that you are an exile in this world. What that does for you, it does a couple of things. It helps you, first of all, to just know what's normal and what's expected in terms of this friction I've been describing. It shouldn't surprise you, like he said at the end of the letter. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial happens, as there's something strange were happening to you. He's saying this isn't odd at all. And he says it slightly differently at the very end of his letter in chapter 5. He talks about resisting the devil firm in your faith, knowing, listen, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, suffering on account of being a Christian, are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He's saying, in other words, wherever you find genuine pockets of believers who love the Lord Jesus enough to obey him, you'll find that there are, there's this friction that we're talking about. That they're suffering the same sufferings that you experience. And sometimes a good deal worse. And I think that helps orient us. It helps set our expectations in terms of what is normal for the Christian life. Because if you don't have a, a measure of what is ordinary, then as soon as this happens, you're like, I'm out of here. I'm done. This wasn't what I signed up to. I think another reason why it helps is that you can begin to understand that God actually has a purpose in and through the experience of suffering that you're going through or the trial that you're being exposed to. You think, well, what possible reason could God have for allowing us to suffer on account of owning the name of Jesus Christ? And, and Peter's really clear here. He says in verse 6 about these being grieved by various trials. And then in the next verse he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the reason why God lets you experience this hostility, this friction, the troubles that we experience in the world because you're a Christian is so that you can know and indeed so that it can be proved that your faith is real. You think about how, you know, so many young men grow up with a sense of a braggadocio 
of thinking I'm, I'm something. You know, I could take him or, you know, play Call of Duty and think you're some kind of warrior or something like that. And, you know, but the, the thing is, you never really know. No one's, you don't know whether someone's got it until you test their mettle. In other words, if, you wouldn't know if a man really is courageous or whatever until he's on the battlefield, until real suffering is at stake. And then you know whether he's loyal to his country, whether he's willing to suffer. I think similarly, when you think about love and whether, you know, one of the great questions if you're dating someone, you know, if you really want to know if he loves you so, it's in his kiss. That's where it is. Actually, that's not true. (laughs) If you really want to know if he loves you so, it's whether he's willing to sacrifice. The tested genuineness of that love is the willingness to suffer, isn't it, for the lover? And I think that's what Peter's saying about the Christian. One of the reasons why God allows us as exiles to experience friction in this world is because he wants to know, do you love me? Do you love me more than this world? Nothing will expose that quicker than when you feel this, the pain of this dividing line. If I, if I name Christ, I suffer. If I don't, I'm good. There has to be a cost, doesn't there? You feel a great tension, a great friction in this world. Here's a second thing. You then feel, which is the flip side to this, a growing desire for God's kingdom and indeed for heaven. And I, you know, there's a saying which says that someone can be so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly use. And I think it's absolute rubbish when you look at the Bible, because the Bible shows that those who are most heavenly minded are of most use to God. Part of the reason is because when your heart is there, your commitment, your loyalty, your passion is with God. It begins to work in very practical ways into your day-to-day life, your faithfulness to the Lord Jesus on a day-to-day basis. And Peter talks to these believers. He says to them, in verses 4 and 5, he speaks about uh, how they've been born again to a living hope and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He says that part of what it means to be a Christian is that God is going to put blessings in your life that are beyond imagination, but he's saying actually most of that is on the other side. Do you remember how Jesus said that part of the reason we should be generous is to store up treasures in heaven because he said where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. I think what Peter is appealing to here is the fact he's saying, listen, if you really think about it, the best is yet to come. And when you think about the rewards of what God gives his beloved in eternity, then your heart will be there. Now, I want to show you why I think that's immensely practical in the day-to-day life. I'll give you a few reasons. One is that it means that you'll not be too attached to this world and to what it offers. Now, you know, you must agree with me that one of the the greatest sort of fire blankets or the, the, the thing that can most quickly douse your passion for God is too much attachment to the things of this world longing for fulfillment in the here and now, for your desires to be absolutely fulfilled in the here and now. One of the flip side to that, of course, is that when you have a heavenly mind, 
those attachments become less powerful. And some of the examples you, know, you see of this are in, it, there's a chapter in the Bible, um, Hebrews 11, where the author to the Hebrews begins to recount some of the great heroes of faith. Men and women through, who, through the centuries prior to this point had lived exemplary lives of faith in God. One of the themes that comes through that whole chapter is that all of them had this exile mindset. And I think on this point, this idea that you're less attached to this world, he, he gives us the example of Abraham. He says about Abraham that by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking for, forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. There it is. He says, Abraham lived a nomadic existence, like a Bedouin tribesman, with his tents, his servants, and his flocks, moving from place to place, rootless, as it were, not attached to the things of this world, because his passion was for the heavenly city. The reason why I think that's so crucial is that it's not that we can't enjoy the things which God gives to us in the here and now, the jobs that he gives us to do, the work that brings him glory, the creating and the making and the loving that we do in the here and now. It's not that those things don't matter, but it's that all these things have less of a hold on you to the degree where they can supplant the authority of Jesus in your life. Having this mindset of being like a sojourner or a wayfarer or a nomad means that Christ keeps you nimble. He's always in charge. Another way you could think of it is this, that you, you know, to have a heavenly mind means you get much less seduced by the fleeting pleasures of this temporary life that we're living. Again, just to give you an example of this one, you know, it's not that we're saying in any way that God is against pleasure and joy. God is the creator of pleasure. He's the giver of joy. Of that I have no doubt. And we enjoy his good gifts in Jesus' name. But you and I know that there is a point at which we can be seduced into temporary pleasures that conflict with our allegiance to Jesus. And having an exile mind liberates you from that. I offer you Moses as my example here. In the same chapter in Hebrews 11, where he says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now bear in mind, Moses grew up in the household of the most powerful man on earth. He was a prince, which meant that any pleasure he wanted was his at a click of his fingers. What the author to the Hebrews tells us is that because of his faith in God, his exile mind, he was able to say no to those pleasures, the fleeting pleasures of sin. And it says instead, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It says he considered the reproach of Christ, in other words, the suffering that you experience because you own the name of Jesus. He considered that greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He had a heavenly mind. Imagine if you went through life with that mentality, suffering 
on account of Christ is greater wealth to me than anything this world can offer in terms of its pleasures. I want to stress to you, by the way, that I'm not talking about self-denial. There's a place in the Christian life for self-denial. That's not what we're talking about here. It's rather saying no to a lesser pleasure so you can have a greater one, which is not self-denial. It's like saying, you know, as we do every day to our kids, don't eat that, you're going to spoil your appetite for dinner. Don't eat the digestive. This is not what I say to my kids, but don't eat the digestive because then you won't, we're having filet steak later. They never have filet steak. But I might say that to myself because it's like, you know, I don't want to spoil my appetite for the better thing. Or if the vegans out there, you're having steamed tofu later. You know, whatever it is, whatever floats your boat. But the point is you, you can't, he's not talking about self-denial here. Having this heavenly mind means I can say no to the fleeting temporary things of this world because I'm an exile in this world and I'm going to say yes to what God wants to give me. Another thing, dimension of this heavenly mind is that it means you are deeply hopeful and optimistic and steady through the varying circumstances of life. And I, I stress that because I think a person who's rooted wholly in the present holy in this world, will find that their highs and their lows, their joys and their sorrows are controlled by their circumstances. We see this on the global scene at the moment. When a teenager from Europe gets on the microphone and chastises world leaders about the fact that the planet's about to die, everyone feels depressed because our lives are very earthbound. I'm not saying we shouldn't feel sad for the things that we're doing to our planet, but an exile does not place their hope in the here and now. You think about the despair that's setting in in our generation, the generations at the moment, because we're so earthly-minded about the decay of our bodies. What is that about? It's because if this body is all you've got, then you want it to last forever. You want it to be as beautiful as when you were 21 years old, or maybe even more beautiful. You, you don't want it to decay. You don't want it to get old. You don't want it to get fat. It's too late for some of us, I know. But... The, the point is that you can't, having an earthly mind means that your, your joys and your sorrows are dictated by these kinds of situations, your, the life in the here and now. And God's people, God's people have something better to anticipate, to look forward to. I can't tell you what a source of strength that is when you're facing the very real examples of suffering in the, in the present. You know, I watch my dad's health decline month after month rapidly. How is it that we can, as a family, sustain joy? The answer is because our hope was never here. We're exiles here. And the reverse is also true. When wonderful things happen in your life, you're liberated from idolizing those things. God gives you a child one day. The great temptation is to make that child the center of your existence. They're so wonderful. They're just like me. It's so extraordinary. And you begin to lavish love on your child. And you think, this is, wow, this is just the extension of everything I ever wanted in life. This is, look, I'm going to invest in this baby. You think all your joy is in that child. And what happens when the child grows up and disappoints you? You're crushed, aren't you? You idolize the kid. Idolize your career, whatever it is you're idolizing. 
Because your hope is here and now, and the Christian is liberated from these things. Their joys and their sorrows are not dependent upon this life, this world. We have a heavenly hope. Let me bring you to a last point. You experience friction. You have a growing desire for heaven. Here's the last thing. Being in exile means you feel a longing to be with the Lord. Now the reason I stress this, it has to do with this idea that exile theology is really about your understanding of where home is. It has to do with where your heart is, where where you want to be. And you ask yourself the question, what is it that makes a home a home? There are lots of ways you can answer that. And for different ones of us, we can say different things. Sometimes it's, you know, it, it was the particular, cult, the kid, particular rhythms that, that were true of your family growing up. You know, the way that you always went for you know, a bike ride on a Saturday, whatever it is you did. And this is what speaks to me of home, or it's the... It's the particular look and feel of the house you grew up in, the decoration, the, the color of the carpets. You know, there are vivid things from my childhood that I remember, like the purple lampshade in my grandmother's hallway when we used to go there every Christmas. It just resonates to me with a sense of home because it was just that we're back here at grandma's house. And, you know, things like that, weird things that stick in your mind, right? Or the smells of the homes you, that you, where you were, you know, of your mom's cooking or whatever else it was. So many things speak to us of home, but I think one thing more important than any of them is not the place and the, and the looks and the feels and the sensations and the, and the smells. It's the people, and often it's, it's one person, someone in the household around whom everything revolved and who exuded and, and created the home. It's often the case, isn't it? And, you know, even, even now for us, you know, whether sea is or is not in the house, dictates whether the house feels like home to some extent. You know, and whether food's getting cooked and whether, you know, just the levels of incompetence here is just unbelievable. So, but the reason why I'm stressing that is because for the Christian, where is home? Home is where Jesus is. We're exiles because we're separated from him physically. His spirit is with us, but he's not with us in person. There's a sense in which we long for him. That's what it means to be in exile. And Peter talks about this. You know, Peter understood better than most this desire, this longing, because of how much he loved Jesus. And I, you know, there are many, many ways you could, you could look at this in his life. One of my favorites is just, you know, the, the stories around uh, the resurrection account, particularly in John's gospel, when we're told that, you know, there are various appearances of Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And on one of them, Peter and, his, and the other disciples were back in their boats because, you know, what else were they meant to do? They're back in their boats, they're fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And what happens? They, a figure appears on the shore, tells them to throw their nets back in, they get a great haul of fish. And what does Peter think? He's like, this has happened before. And suddenly he realizes it's Jesus on the shore. What does he do? You know, he does the most illogical thing. He gets dressed and then jumps in the water. And you think, what is that? That is his unbelievable passion to go and be with Jesus, to see him. He's like, I've missed you. 
I love you. You're the center of our, of our group. You're the reason we, we're together. You're what binds us together. And now you're here. I just want to be near you, Jesus. And he's so eager. It tells us a little bit later in that, in that, in that same chapter, in chapter 21, that the, the catch of fish that they, they hauled in was so big it was breaking the nets. But it tells us that Peter hauled it in all by himself. He's just so, he's like a Labrador, isn't he? All this kind of, <laughs> this unbelievable passion. Jesus is here, I'm swimming, I'm grabbing the fish, I'm just doing it all, I'm just so excited. Uh, the image of it is really vivid. A little bit later in that chapter, Jesus begins to question him, and he says, Peter, do you love me? And he asks him three times, which seems to correspond with the fact that he denied Jesus three times during the trial. And he asks him three times, do you love me? You know that I love you. And on the third time, it says he was grieved by the question. Why was he so saddened by it? Because he hates the idea that his love for Jesus was in any way in question. The one thing that, he, that was controlling his life was that he loved Jesus. And yeah, he'd made a mistake when he denied Christ. Humbles us, doesn't it? Because you think, well, if he did it, would I, would I confess Christ in those circumstances? But Peter loves Jesus. And then when he's writing to these, these Christians, these elect exiles scattered through the empire, what does he say to them? You know, it takes one to know one. He says that this love which I have for Jesus, I can see in you too. He says in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's what it means to be an exile. Your deepest desire is him. And because we're not yet with him, that's why we experience this sensation of being exiles in the world. I think it's a little bit like the love of a bride anticipating her wedding day. And it's certainly an analogy that the New Testament uses. There's a sense in which she becomes an exile in her own home because her heart has moved on. She's tunnel vision. She's waiting for the wedding day. She might go a bit crazy along the way, but it's because she's desperate for him. And there's a sense in which that's what he's saying about us as Christians. Jesus is home. Now, I want to close, but I just want to say to those of you who are not Christian, one of the things that will strike you as you think about this theme is that implicit in it is the idea that Living just for the present will ultimately be hollow. You can read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's an exploration of that theme. If a man lives his whole life invested just in the here and now on what this world can offer, what does it amount to? He says vanity, hollowness, futility. You could earn all the money in the world. You could write all the books. You could sleep with all the people, most attractive people. And he says all of that would amount to vanity. And it may be the case that you understand that already. Some people understand it too late. 
Or they keep lying to themselves, thinking, well, just one more thing. Just a bit further along this road, I'm going to find that fulfillment that I was looking for. It's a lie. When you look at the people of God and you see this exile community, you see a people who are switched on to that truth, who understand that Christ alone is our fulfillment. And your desire then will be to be a part of that people because you'll want to know the joy that they have having something better to live for than just the temporary joys of building a life that will ultimately crumble. And you're invited to join. Those of us who are Christian, however, the thing which you need to be thinking about as we consider this theme is that there needs to sometimes be, regularly be, a renewed repentance of the love of this world. And of course we love the world in the same sense in which God does. Just to say we have a passion to reach this world. But when your heart is tied to the things of this world too much, that's where the tension lies. That's why you're experiencing this, this tearing inside you. You love Jesus, but you also love the world and you don't know which way to go. Friend, you've got to repent of that because it will rip you apart. We need to pray that our minds will line up with our identities. That in understanding who we are, we'll then have the power to live it out more effectively. And part of that is just you embracing this because some of you have just resisted it all along. You said, I'm a Christian, but I'm I'm also part of this system. And understanding, embracing your identity as an exile will free you from that. It will give you the freedom to say, no, I know which way I'm going. I belong to Christ. I want to live the life of abandonment to him. How else can you be faithful? How else can we rise to the faith of these men like Abraham and Moses who we were talking about earlier? We have to understand who we are. Amen? Amen. Well, we're going to take communion. One of the great and compelling motivators of living for Christ is knowing that he lived for us. One of the reasons why you can embrace your identity, even if it entails suffering, is it because you know he suffered first for you. So as we eat the bread and drink the wine... Eat them with the understanding that every mouthful is a statement, I belong to Jesus. It's the seal of your identity. And if that isn't true of you, you can't eat it, you can't drink it, not in any honest way. But those of us who know the Lord, who are Christian, we eat, we drink, because we're saying this means I am his. I've been purchased. I belong to him. I want you to bow your heads and let's pray together. I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine, and I just want to give you a few minutes to, as the, the band lead us, just to kind of, um, just to think about your life and think about the ways in which you want this identity to creep into who you are, to change your self-understanding. It may be the case you need to repent of stuff. You need to say to the Lord, Lord, I've been loving the world in a way I shouldn't. 
It may be the case that you want God to foster in you a greater desire for him. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you that when we understand who we are in Christ, we stand with a kind of solidarity with your people all around the world and all through history who have loved you more than life itself. And Father, our desire is that we would understand this in a way that actually affects our day-to-day decisions, that changes our emotions, changes how we feel about our lives. I pray, Father, for a great power of the Holy Spirit to come and expose within us the ways that we need to change and bring us to a deeper self-understanding of what it is you've called us to when you called us elect exiles, when you called us out to belong to you. I pray, Lord, that this whole series will actually have an impact to change our lives. And I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.